Well, church, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. I do not believe we have the uh, verses on the screen for us this morning, and so uh, you might want to find your way there. 1 Peter chapter 5, that's on page 1017 in the Pew Bibles. We're going to be looking at a couple verses uh, there, beginning in verse 8. And then I'm going to do something I almost never do. Uh, We're we're going to then spend time in another book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2. And so you could go ahead, if you want to get ahead, you could find your way there about halfway through. We'll be in Revelation 2. And uh, what we're going to do in these two passages, rather than kind of um, exegeting them, working our way through them as we typically do, we're just going to draw simple principles that they teach, in particular about this context of persecution in which we've been considering uh, this morning. Of course, uh, if you're not aware, we're not, uh, this isn't like a Hamilton Baptist Church thing that you guys uh, focus on the persecuted church, in particular to pray for them on the first Sunday in November. This is, as the screen there says, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. So there are literally thousands, tens of thousands of churches around this world who are committing themselves uh, to interceding on behalf of the persecuted church. In addition to our prayers, we of course today have taken up an offering uh, for the persecuted church. And, uh, and many of you I know gave generously and sacrificially to that. If you weren't prepared for that, you could do that next week. You just note that on the memo line in your offering, and we'll make sure that that goes to do one of three things. One, buys Bibles uh, for uh, those in the persecuted context. Number two, trains pastors in the persecuted context. And number three, supports the widows and children of um, martyred Christians uh, in the persecuted context. And so I'm, I'm going to share with us from 1 Peter 5. Guys, I'm hearing a ringing. Is anybody else hearing a ringing? And uh, I will um, not be able to keep my... So I, I'm happy to turn my, this off. Okay, thanks, Ben. So 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Hear now the word of God. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we pray even now that you would come and work in our midst as you speak to us through your word. And the truths that we consider today, we would not only be able to apply to our own life, but that we would be able to apply in prayer for our suffering brothers and sisters. And of course, as we're mindful of the dreadful state that so many experience around this world, Uh, we're also increasingly aware that hostility towards Christianity abounds in our land. That to be a Christian 50 years ago was to be a good thing. And today, that's not so clear in the minds of many who live around us. And so I trust, even as your word, I think, prepares us, that suffering perhaps is coming upon us. And so will you 
Prepare our hearts as we consider these truths. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Tell you what, I'm going to turn off my lapel. Just a couple of weeks ago in Algeria, October 16th, in fact, uh, the government closed the nation's largest Protestant church in the middle of church service, leading to a panic and several beatings by the police forces. The next two days, two more churches in Algeria were closed, continuing a systematic campaign over the last two years against Protestants in this North Africa nation. In fact, they have now closed 14 of the 50 Protestant churches in the nation, the others being repeatedly visited by the country's intelligence services. When asked why, one pastor said, We see signs of a new revival. Muslims are coming to us. They are tired, and some are clearly and openly saying, We want to know Christ. Therefore, the authorities close the churches. That's their new tactic, he says. But we are well organized in prayer. We pray from 6 p.m. till midnight. Recently in Pakistan, a man named Ishtayik, a young Christian, was traveling by bus to city. Spent hours in the bus with no air conditioning. His bus stopped for a break and a village, and many of those who were on the bus went to the tea stall. Ishtayik did not notice the sign that said, you must declare your faith before you are served. So after he drank his tea, he went to pay, for the bus was leaving soon, and when the cashier, Mubarak Ali, saw that Ishtayak wore a cross, he became enraged. And Christians, evidently, in this country get their own silverware, because Christians are thought to defile whatever they touch. Well, Mubarak grabbed Ishtayak and shouted for employees to grab whatever they could to beat him. Fourteen employees responded, and beat him with stones, iron rods, clubs, and repeatedly stabbed him with kitchen knives as he pleaded for mercy for simply drinking tea. Other, the bus passengers finally intervened, took him to the hospital where he died from eternal bleeding and a fractured skull. In Afghanistan, Kershi Bibi is now lame in both legs after a rocket struck her church while she was praying. She considers herself blessed for five were killed in that attack, including two children. Last couple months in Iran, nine pastors have been arrested without charge. In Nigeria, the United Nations has stated that since 2009, an estimated 8,000 children have been abducted by Boko Haram. 80% of those children are girls, and almost all of them are Christians. In China this month, the government abolished a large leading church these days, in fact, coming this week, Indonesia is, um, is about to pass an increasingly strict blasphemy laws. And just uh, five days, or maybe a week ago, on October 26, in Myanmar, according to the Associated Press, Buddhists abducted a pastor and 57 other Christians. These people uh, don't live in the same countries. And they don't speak the same language and they don't eat the same food, and they don't enjoy the same customs. But as we shared last night, they share one thing in common. They follow Jesus. He is their Lord. He is their King. And therefore, they suffer because of their faith. They are just a handful 
of the 250 million Christians today, a quarter of a billion Christians today, are either currently being persecuted or living in threat of persecution simply because they follow Jesus. This is from Russia to the Sudan. This is from Nigeria to North Korea. This is from Colombia to India. This is at the hands of, of Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, communist, authoritarian regime, animists. Uh, it's just not a one kind of problem. It's coming from all sorts of this world. And they are attacked. They are discriminated against. They, they risk sexual violence, torture, arrest, and martyrdom. And it, it, it's not infrequent. It's happening right now, this very moment. It's happening. This will be now the 14th year in a row that I've served as a senior pastor and the 14th year in a row that the church in which I have led has recognized the first Sunday of November as the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And I am often asked, Pastor, why is there so much suffering? Why, why such persecution? I remember someone a number of years asked me, why do they hate us so much? I think there's probably a number of answers to that question. We, we can look at, um, we could probably come at it from a human side. What is it in the heart of man that leads them to do such things? And we could look at such passages Even uh, Cody referred to it this morning from John 15 when Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember what I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. We can look at it from a divine perspective. We might ask the question, why would God, if he's good and sovereign, powerful, all-knowing, allow his children to suffer? So? And we might go to passages like Genesis 50 and verse 20, when we think of the suffering Joseph, falsely imprisoned there, sold as a slave, and he says to his betraying brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. We could explore those angles, and I trust many more, but for our purposes this morning, the time we have, I would like to consider what we might call the satanic role in the suffering of God's people. God's people in Pakistan, God's people in America, though we might experience different kinds of suffering, we have the same enemy, an enemy that we see here in 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, when I say the satanic role of suffering. I want to be clear. I want to define some terms here. I I am not speaking metaphorically. When When I refer to Satan, I am not referring to some mystical evil reality or some abstract principle of opposition. I am referring to a personal spiritual being which the Bible says stands in opposition to God and his people and identifies him with the name either Satan or the devil. And I'm also referring to the fact that he, according to Scripture, has an army of spiritual beings in which the Bible calls demons who happen to be fallen angels. 
Now, I say this because we, it's 2019, and we are, of course, here in America. We're all very modern and advanced, aren't we? And it is amusing to many. I trust that anyone with any degree of education would actually talk about the devil as a reality. I remember a number of years ago listening to a program on NPR Fresh Air, which sometimes I enjoy to listen to. And uh, she was interviewing, Terry Gross was interviewing a former Roman Catholic monk. And they were laughing at the fact that there still remain people out there that believe in the devil. It was very, very amusing to them. And they almost couldn't contain themselves in laughter. Uh, How can anyone believe such a silly idea? Well, do you know who believes in the devil? Jesus does. And you know my rule, right? You have this rule? When you got the whole world says this over here, and Jesus says this over here, I'm going with Jesus. 100%. I don't care what you say. I don't care how many people say it. I don't care how clear it seems to be. If Jesus says opposite, I'm going with Jesus. He's the only guy I know who said, watch this. I'm going to be killed for sinners. And three days later, I'm going to get up bodily from the dead. He did so, appearing to 500 people. That's enough for me. I'm going with Jesus. And Jesus believed in the devil. The Bible teaches us about the devil. In fact, if you don't believe in the devil, my question for you would be, if you believe there can be a spiritual being who happens to be good that many people call God, why then is it simplistic to also believe there's a spiritual being that is evil called the devil? In fact, I would even go a step further, um, and I would suggest if you do not believe in a supernatural evil, that you are actually the simplistic one. And that you have an an utter inability to explain reality as it actually is. Because I think the devil is at cause for much of the evil in this world. Indeed, much of the suffering in this world. For we are warned, aren't we, to uh, prepare for the devil's attacks. Ephesians 6.11 tells us that we should put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So that raises the question, what are the devil's schemes? How does he attack us? Well, he often does so, doesn't he, through deception and temptation. To use a metaphor, we might call this the devil's snake-like attacks. His forked tongue lying to us. After all, the book of Revelation says in chapter 12 and verse 9, he is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and is the deceiver of the whole world. Of course, the great example of this snake-like attack is in, found in the Garden of Eden when the devil deceives Adam and Eve into the, the, this rebellion, and he does so through lies. He does so through a seduction. He does so through deception. In fact, he not only did it way back then, you remember the, the very powerful encounter between Jesus and Peter, the one who wrote this book, remember this? And, and Jesus says to Peter, when Peter c- tries to encourage Jesus not to go through with the crucifixion, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. What, what's going on there? Well, it seems that the devil has influenced Peter to try to persuade Jesus not to go through with the plan of God, namely his crucifixion. And Jesus says, I'm not interested in that type of temptation. Get behind me, Satan. And so you see the devil is dangerous, don't you? Because he is hidden and he is subtle and he is scheming. This is why Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians, that he disguises himself as an 
angel of light. But what Peter tells us is that the devil doesn't always come at us snake-like, if you will. For 1 Peter chapter 5 says he comes at times lion-like. What does he say there? Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It seems this kind of attack from the devil is much different. This is not slithering. This is prowling. This is not subtle. This is roaring. Why does a lion roar, by the way? What's the point of a lion's roar? Is it not to intimidate? Is it not to cause fear? Right? Just don't think about the lions trapped behind the, the bars and the chains at the National Zoo. Think about walking out on the, the open plains of the Serengeti and you hear the roar of a lion. There will be, of course, great fear in your heart. They roar in order to terrify. And he roars, but he also prowls. Isn't that an interesting word that Peter describes the devil? He is a prowling He's not walking, he's not strolling, he's prowling. Why do you prowl? Right? You prowl, seems to me, when you're looking for victims. Right? You remember the encounter between God and the devil in Job chapter 1? And God asks the devil, where have you been? What you been doing? The devil answers that, he, that I've been roaming the earth, going back and forth. Stalking for his victims, prowling for his prey, restlessly roaming to find one to destroy, or as Peter puts it, to devour. He says he's seeking there at the end of verse 8. Notice that, seeking someone to devour. So please do not be confused. The devil is not a fun guy to invite over to your party. He devours, which is an interesting word, isn't it? How is it that he devours? We'll read on in verse 9. For Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He devours by causing Christians to suffer. And he does so not just in one location, but evidently throughout the world. So it's just not temptation and deception he brings, but pain and hardship. In his jaws are the suffering brothers as he seeks to devour them. And I think he tries to devour them in a couple ways. One, he seeks to get them to abandon their faith. And two, it very much pleases him, according to Revelation chapter 2, to kill them. Look over now, if you will. Turn over to Revelation chapter 2 as we read Jesus' letter here to the church in Smyrna. This is, uh, what, the second letter of the seven letters that Jesus writes to the church. And the church of Smyrna, uh, near Ephesus in Asia Minor, is a church that seems to be undergoing a great deal of suffering and persecution, particularly identified uh, by Jesus as the cause of the devil himself. And so look what uh, uh, Jesus says here in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. We know in Smyrna there was a large Jewish population, and evidently, according to this letter, the synagogue was slandering Christians. They're being slandered by their neighbors, just like many of the persecuted brothers today. All sorts of slander, even maybe slander here in America as Christ followers. What would they say? 
Well, it seems that they were saying it to the Roman authorities that these Christians are dangerous. These Christians are rebels. These Christians follow another king. And we're surmising this because we see these are the type of things they actually do say. Even in our study of First Thessalonians, if you remember when we started, we looked in Acts 17 when Paul first came to Thessalonica. And you remember there was a lar- many Jews came to faith, but there was a, a, the uprising of the Jews who remained um, obstinate to the gospel. And what did they say to the authorities? They say that these Christians are declaring there is another king named Caesar. And so this is what happened. These Jews became furious in Thessalonica, it seems to be, as well in Smyrna. And it even happens today. When someone converts out of Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism and bows their knee to King Jesus, those who remain um, rise up in opposition. For instance, our brother Daniel in Malaysia, who says Malays who leave Islam basically lose everything. They're refugees in their own country. And are treated as outcasts. If Muslims are caught leaving Islam, they are sent to an Islamic re-education center deep in the jungle. You see, the lion is prowling, isn't he? And of course, he's not content with slander. For if you read on in verse 10, we see the Lord says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. There's that word again, suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you will be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation. And so the devil's going to, Jesus says, the devil's going to throw you into prison. So how do you think, well, how in the world does the devil throw people into prison? Well, he does so by using the slander of these Jews to the Roman authorities. Um, of course, uh, Jews, he says they're not actually Jews. They're in verse 9, but are what? He calls them the synagogue of Satan. So there's the connection between verse 9 and the slander of the Jews and verse 10, the devil throwing them in prison, that that these individuals who are persecuting the Christians in Smyrna are simply pawns in Satan's hand as he uses them to cause uh, Christians to suffer. Just as Jesus said, remember when he spoke to the Pharisees who stood in great opposition to him, in fact would one day lead to his great persecution, Jesus said to them, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Satan is behind this hateful slander. He seeks to devour. And he has been doing so for thousands of years. He hasn't stopped for 2,000 years. It continues as the devil rises up this opposition to the Christian people. They see it in their communities as a betrayal when you worship Jesus. Um, and, the, and the devil rises them up to come against them. It happens in Nigeria, in Sudan, and Eritrea. As Christians are subjected to sudden violence and death from Muslim terrorists. It happens in China, in Iran, in Indonesia, where Christians will, will be jailed for long periods of time for their testimony to Jesus. It happens in Vietnam, in the villages, in the rural villages. You'll be exiled from your family and home for coming to Christ as took place in our sister's life named Yi B. She became a Christian a number of years ago when she saw how different Christians were from other people, but her community saw it as a betrayal, that she would no longer worship uh, their ancestors and their animistic gods. And so she said in a recent interview, that, quote, there was a day in 2018, I was cooking the rice to prepare for the morning meal, 
And the people from the village came in and took the furniture out of the house so that they could demolish the house. Her faith in Jesus, in other words, meant she was no longer welcome in her home, no longer welcome in her community, no longer welcome in her tribe, even no longer welcome in her family. Because it meant that her husband no longer believes her to be worthy to be his wife or even the mother of their children. She would say in this interview, they pulled my hair and dragged me out of the village. My child was crying, and so they took her so she could not see me. And she tells this story, the account reads in a soft voice, as the images are stark. A child screaming for her mother, dragged away, as ye be is pulled from her home, loudly arguing with the other villagers. She continues saying, the police came and asked me to come to a new village. I told them my family were in this village and I would not leave. And so the police tied up my legs and put me on the back of a motorbike and drove me out of the village. And she says this with tears in her eyes, as you can imagine, being tied up on the back of a motorcycle, cut off from her tribe and from her family, listening to the screams of her daughter as they fade into the d- distance. Just another Christian who chooses Jesus and following Christ cost everything. Jesus says to this church, you're going to be thrown into prison. You're going to have tribulation. You're going to be tested. And the test seems to be to see if you would abandon God. That seems to be the devil's goal. That's, I think, what it ultimately means when he wants to devour. He wants to take as many, many people with him down into the lake of fire as he possibly can. And so he wants, wants to convince people that it's not worth following Christ. And 250 million Christians face this threat today or are in threat of it. Right? Persecutions are facing threat that, that, that would overwhelm their faith with fear and pain. Because you could just deny Jesus in almost every one of these cases and go home. You just abandon the faith and go back to your family, go back to your daughter, go back to your village, go back to your job. And that's the threat that they face. That's the pressure that is placed upon them by our enemy. As it was this year, in January 8th, um, with a woman in northern India named Kamcha Miniaki, 22 years old. She, she said in an interview, until the night of January 8th this year, I was dead against the Christian faith and used to hate people who followed Christianity, including my husband. She said, well, what happened on January 8th? Well, she says, January 8th, there were 200 people in front of my house at 8 in the night. Almost the entire village, in the middle of so much noise, I heard the strong voice of the village chief saying, bring the axe, we will finish them today. You see, her husband had converted to Christianity two years earlier. And he was facing constant pressure to recant his faith. Constant harassment to abandon Christ. Not just from the villagers, even from his wife. For she said, I remember saying to my husband several times, I will divorce him if he continues to be a Christian. Well, that didn't work. And so they turned to violence. A mob surrounded the house. You think that might be pressure to recant? You ever have 200 people surrounding your house? Someone yelling, bring the axe? There with your family? You think that might think, okay, what if I just walk away from Jesus? They all go home. We go back to peace. None of this has to happen. 
All you have to do is walk away. That's what they face. In fact, Kamsha said, I thought to myself, they're going to kill my husband. I was hoping my husband would decide to leave the Christian faith and compromise with the villagers because there was no other way for him to survive. But what moved me was the conviction and determination my husband had in that situation. He was ready to pay the cost even if it is death. In fact, that night, she says, to my surprise, he came very close to me. And he whispered in my ear as the mob screamed outside that God will take care of him and that I should not worry. And then he fled into the dark forest as the angry villagers chased him, leaving his wife alone in the house. Kamsha said it was so scary to think what could happen to my husband in the forest that night. But his faith in Jesus was so strong. As I worried, I remembered his words that God would take care of him. These words not only brought me comfort, they infected me. I started to tell myself there must be something significant about this Jesus. She concludes, My husband not only hoped for good things from Jesus, but he was willing to face death itself for him. With the little I knew, on January 8th, I asked Jesus to make me his. That extraordinary. What a what a what an what an altar call that is. You put two hundred people outside your house screaming, "We're going to kill you if you're a Christian," and that causes one to become a Christian, even in the face of such, such opposition. Of course, this is what Peter has exhorted. I mean, Peter, if you look back in that passage, in face of this suffering, what does he tell the Christians? He says, "Resist." Resist him, resist the devil, firm in your faith. Don't abandon your faith. The same exhortation, it seems, that Jesus gives here in verse 10 of Revelation chapter 2. When he says there, towards the end of the verse, be faithful, what is it? Unto death. That's Christ's exhortation to the suffering Christian. Be, Be faithful unto death. In other words, resisting the devil doesn't mean you don't get harmed. It doesn't mean that you you don't get persecuted. It doesn't mean you don't face tribulation, suffering, or even death. But it does mean you don't get the ultimate harm. Listen, he can only kill you. That's all he can do. And Jesus calls for them to stand firm. And you might think, and I might think, how in the world does anybody stand firm in the face of that? I mean, sometimes we buckle under the, the disapproving gaze of someone we don't even like so much. How do you stand firm? Where do you find the strength? Whether you face lion-like persecution or you face a serpent-like deception. Well, in this lovely little letter here, let me just briefly point out seven truths in which Christ offers that shows us he's worthy of, of us losing it all. Seven truths that would encourage us to stand firm in the face of death. We'll be brief. But look what he says. First of all, Christ is eternal. For what does he say there in verse 8? He says, these are the words of the first and the last. Right? Who writes the letter? The the one who is the first and the last. Think back as far as you can go. Before this world, before there were stars in the sky, before there was anything, there was Jesus. And now think about as far as you can go. And go on and on and on and on. And the, the, the world is gone and the sun is burned out and who knows what else. And there you shall find what? Jesus. Right? 
And, and he is the first and he is the last. He is before everything. He is after everything. And that is the one whom we have sworn our allegiance to. That is the one to whom we worship in awe and reverence. My friends, listen. He will have the last word. And in the end, the slander will be gone. And all there will be will be Christ, his truth, and his people. Secondly, Christ is victorious, for read on in verse 8, for he is not only the first and the last, he is the one who died and came to life. He triumphed over death itself, the, our undefeated enemy, until Jesus came along. And if he could defeat the undefeatable, if he could defeat death, what can stop him? Well, nothing. He's proven he's unstoppable, unstoppable. Right? Can, can, what, what can defeat his purposes? Nothing. And his purpose is for Our good, even in the midst of trouble and trial and even martyrdom, Christ intends ultimate and eternal good for those who are his. Number three, Christ is present. For he says in verse nine, does he not? I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander. I know it. I know it. What comfort there must be among the suffering. What strength among the tempted to know that Christ knows your trouble. I am aware, he says. I'm, I'm acquainted with it, he says. He doesn't minimize it and say, listen, it's not that bad. He doesn't demean it and say, listen, you should be stronger. He doesn't cheapen it and say, uh, with some kind of naive ivory tower counsel. Rather, he tells the suffering. He tells the, those who are in pain and hardship, I know your pain. I know your tribulation. It reminds me of that wonderful passage In the book of Isaiah, when we read, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One, your Savior. And so, may we and they not compound our suffering by thinking we are alone, for our God is not a distant king. He is not an unsympathetic friend. He knows and he is near. Number four, notice that Christ is generous. For he says there in verse nine, I know your poverty. But see that parenthetical statement, but you are rich. These people are impoverished undoubtedly because of their faith, being cut off from economic opportunity um, and, and and. Jesus says to them, you're impoverished, yes, but you're rich. He says, uh, you're in prison, but you're rich. You're suffering, but you're rich. You're martyred, but you're rich. Now, we might think, what? That doesn't sound rich. Well, friends, we need to look a little deeper, don't we? To see the spiritual riches. And whenever I'm able to read about about the persecuted church or, or hear their testimony, these people who have so little and so are so materially, materially poor seem to have this vibrant joy and this spiritual wealth that you and I, I think, often know very little of. Oh, just, don't, just don't look deeper. Look to the future and see the riches that are coming. Do you not remember our Lord said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The earth. Or remember the book of Romans is, That declares if you are a child of God, then you are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 
Or consider what Paul would say. Remember that he says, I I declare that the sufferings of this world, and he suffered greatly, did he not? The sufferings of this world are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. So impoverished, yes, but rich. Pain and hardship, yes, but Christ in his generosity has made all who are his rich, and one day we shall walk into that inheritance. Number five, Christ is aware, it seems to me, of what we can endure. For he says there in verse 10, and speaking of their trial, uh, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. I don't think he's uh, numbering them on the calendar. I think 10 days is simply uh, a way to say a short time. That your trouble and suffering will be brief. Your tribulation soon will be over. And he knows our frame. He knows what we can handle. And so it won't last long. Even if it lasts a life compared to eternity, it won't last long. Just a little while. And then we walk into forevermore. Sixth, Christ will crown you. Look at this great promise there in verse 11 when he says, He who has an ear, and I pray that you do. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What a wonderful verse. We'll return to that in a moment. The verse I was looking for is there at the end of verse 10 when he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Those who die in Jesus are crowned with life by Jesus. I will give you the crown of life. I wonder, will he put the crown upon our head? This laurel wreath of life resting upon our brow. What a day that will be when God brings his people home. Peter has a similar message in referring to the suffering when he says, after you have suffered a little while, then uh, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will do four things for us. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The word restore means to mend, often translated mend. Peter, who writes these words, a fisherman, would know well what this term meant. God God will mend you, he says. God will make you whole, he says. God will stand you on your feet, he says, which is what it means to confirm. Because he will strengthen and establish you architectural terms that reminds us of what Peter would say earlier in his letter, that we are being built into the house of God. That is, that God will dwell with us forever. That Christ will indeed come and be with us. As one pastor put it, when the fight is fought and the race is run and you die at the finish line, the wreath that will be put on your head will be the crown of everlasting life. No more pain, nor slander, nor shame, nor tears, nor depression, no more frustration and discouragement, no more tribulation, only life and light and joy and God forever. And lastly, as we just saw in verse 11, Christ will be yours forever. For the one who conquers, that is, the one who remains firm in their faith in the midst of tribulation, will not be hurt by the second death. What's worse than death? What's worse than martyrdom? Something the Bible calls the second death. God will not spare us from the first death, as you know. But those who are in Christ will be rescued from the second. 
The second, according to the book of Revelation, is eternal condemnation. Instead of being condemned forever, we shall, by his grace, eternally be with him, and we will never face separation. What a promise. If you remain firm in your faith, you will not be hurt by the second death. These are seven truths we must believe, seven truths that we would do well to pray that our suffering brothers and sisters would cherish within their hearts, that they might stand firm against the devil, whether he comes at them like a serpent with his deception or a lion with his distress. And when we do, when we stand firm, when they do, you would realize we're just simply walking a path that our Lord has already blazed. He too faced the serpent, did he not, in the wilderness? Defeating his lies, refusing his seductions, showing that he had complete allegiance to God. And he too faced the lion upon that hill called Calvary. And he resisted him. Even as he exhorts us, he himself was firm and steadfast. And therefore, being the blameless sacrifice that we so desperately needed to die in our place. They're dying upon the hill, dying upon that cross, so that we and all who trust in him might be saved from this second death, so that we might receive a crown of everlasting life by him. Not made comfortable, not made rich, but that we might become eternally his. Are you his? Have you bowed your knee to this king? The first and the last. The one who died and rose again. Have you surrendered your life to him in faith? Not try to earn your way into his good graces, but called out to him as he has taught us, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or perhaps to use the words of our new sister, Kamsha, who said, what, just uh, 10 months ago, someplace in northern India, as she asked Jesus, to make me his. Have you done that? If you ask Christ to make you his, I pray that you see what he offers, what he offers you, the life that he would give you, the eternal life he would give you. And for all of us who have, when the suffering comes upon us, when the lies besiege us, when the pressure increases upon us, may we, as Christ has exhorted us, because of his great work for us, remain faithful even unto death. Our Father in heaven, we are in awe of the work of Christ as we think about our persecuted brothers and sisters. We recognize and remember that our God is not, has not remained in heaven and is unmoved and untouched by the suffering that occurs upon this world. For all that those who claim his name experience today have previously been experienced by our Lord himself. And he has taken this upon himself um, that we might be saved through his work and that he might be a sympathetic high priest, as the book of Hebrews tells us. He knows us and that he might minister to us. And so even now, Lord Jesus, we ask you, as we have all week long, as we gather last night in prayer and fasting, and as we even pray this morning once again, will you come and minister in a great and mighty way amongst your children who suffer. They are all over this world. You know their trouble. You know their trial. Will you help them to be firm in the midst of it? 
if you choose not to ease their pain and suffering, which of course we long for, if you choose for them to walk through the fire and walk through the waters, we pray by your Spirit that you enable them to stand firm even unto death. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.